is going on, true crime fans. I'm your host, Tease. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Big thanks to Michaela for recommending today's case. I remember hearing this on True Crime Garage, like way before we even started Going West. And it is just a totally baffling case. So it was really interesting to dive back into it after not having heard the story for like six years. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's one of those cases that probably a lot of you guys know. But, yeah, it's uh, a bit more well-known, for sure. Yeah, props to a True Crime Garage. They're actually the podcast that got Daphne and I into podcasting in the first place. Yes, they are. We used to listen to them in the car all the time. And here we are, so thank you to them. <laughs> yes, and also, again, thank you to Michaela. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, this case is just wild. There's so many different pieces of it that we're just going to dive into because so much of it doesn't make sense, so let's go. All right, guys, this is episode 332 of Going West, so let's get into it. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In August of 1987, two teenage boys were hit by a freight train in the woods of Arkansas. What was originally believed to be a tragic accident quickly evolved into a controversial case believed now to be a homicide cover-up. These are the murders of Don Henry and Kevin Ives, also known as the Boys on the Track. Larry Kevin Ives, who went by Kevin, was born on April 28, 1970 in Arkansas, where he joined an older sister named Alicia, along with parents Linda and Larry Ives. Kevin is remembered for his, quote, irresistible grin and effervescent personality, and he loves spending time outdoors, but equally loves staying in and playing video games. Don George Henry, who was Kevin's best friend, was born on September 30th, 1970, to Marvell and Curtis Henry. And together, the boys attended Bryant High School in Bryant, Arkansas, which is about 20 minutes southwest from the capital of Little Rock. Don is remembered as being naturally funny and just the type of person who could talk to anyone about anything. 
The boys were regarded as inseparable and shared many of the same interests and pastimes like they loved to hunt together and both had a passion for cars, often helping each other work on each other's cars. In the summer of 1987, the boys were about to head into their senior year of high school, and they were just soaking up the last moments of summer vacation. On the evening of Saturday, August 22, 1987, the boys headed out for the night to meet up with some friends, and they would often double date on weekend nights, but that night, they were going to hang out with friends in a large parking lot outside of Little Rock that was known to kind of host groups of teens. Friends would meet up there to listen to music, drink, and smoke a bit of weed, especially during the summer months. But as the festivities kind of waned, Kevin and Dawn headed out around midnight. Not ready for the night to wind down quite yet, they decided to stop by Dawn's house to pick up his rifle before doing some late night hunting. Kevin waited outside the house while Dawn went in to talk to his dad. The two of them chatted for about 15 minutes before the boys took off with Don's 22 caliber rifle in hand, and by then, it was almost 1 a.m. So the pair set off to go spotlighting, which has been kind of the course of some criticism since their deaths, because this is an illegal practice in Arkansas. And for those who don't know, because I didn't know what it did you do you know what that is, Heath? I absolutely do, yeah. Okay, I, I didn't grow up hunting or doing any of that stuff vegetarian here but basically spotlighting involves like shining a bright light into the eyes of an animal in the dark which causes it to freeze in its uh, tracks and makes it easier to hunt so sadly they were doing this on that night or at least they were trying to now for the next three hours no one saw or heard from kevin and don then around 4 a.m in the early morning hours of sunday august 23rd 1987 a train conductor for Union Pacific Railroad spotted the boys on the tracks. Now, this train, which stretched over a mile long or 1.6 kilometers long, was bound for Little Rock, carrying cargo in excess of 6,000 pounds, and it contained 75 cars. This is a big train. It was also steaming through the small outlying communities of Little Rock at a speed of over 52 miles or 83 kilometers per hour. When the four cargo train employees spotted bodies on the track, they employed the emergency brake within three to five seconds, but still the train took close to half a mile to stop. And by then it was too late. Police were called to the area, which was just outside Alexander, Arkansas, so only a mile from where Don's family lived. The incident was written off as a tragic accident, though, but the bodies of 17-year-old Don Henry and 16-year-old Kevin Ives were found on the tracks, having been run over by this train. After authorities arrived at the scene, they were taken in for autopsies, but mostly just as a formality, because... In their minds, they're just thinking this was a tragic accident and nothing but. But strangely, this train crew, who were absolutely rattled by the evening's events, claimed that the boys hadn't even flinched at the sound of the horn or the deafening roar of the impending crash. The train crew also noted that the boys were laid out perpendicular to the tracks, partially covered in a green tarp, as if they had, you know, tucked themselves in. So this wasn't the type of situation where they were playing around on the tracks and standing on them and then the train quickly approached. They were laying down. 
And alongside them was Don's 22 caliber rifle. Although all four of the eyewitnesses on the train that night had reported seeing a green tarp partially shrouding the boys' bodies, no evidence of that tarp was ever found, and they were not known to have such an item in their possession. The boys were positioned almost as if they had been posed at an open casket funeral. And one eyewitness account was as follows, quote, I saw two boys lying side by side like soldiers at attention. They looked like they had laid down there and pulled this cover up over them like a blanket. Part of it was off. I noticed they never moved. Here we were, bearing down on them, and there was no movement of their heads. They made no attempt to rise. State-appointed medical examiner Dr. Fami Malik, uh, not Rami Malik, performed an- <laughs> Sorry, that was a really delayed reaction on my part. I, that didn't even come to my mind. Yeah, it just popped into my brain. As I was reading that name, I was like, uh, Fami Malik, Rami Malik. So Fami Malik performed this autopsy and then came to the boys' families with a tidy conclusion. And it was basically that the two boys had been smoking marijuana on the evening of their deaths and had likely fallen asleep on the tracks. Dr. Malik wrote that Kevin and Don were found to have an incredibly high concentration of marijuana in their system, basically the equivalent of about 20 joints, and that they were likely immobile on the track due to the sheer volume that they had ingested. Now, he claimed that that accounted for their lack of response to the horn or the impending impact of this train. Thus, their deaths were ruled accidental. And two days after the tragedy, the Saline County Sheriff's Office announced that there was no reason to suspect foul play. So let's talk about this for a second. Like, there's a lot more details to come, but the idea of two teenage boys both smoking what would be equivalent to 20 joints is insane. But there's there's a lot to this. So firstly, I smoke weed most nights, and a full joint would be too much for even me. Um, and then I talked to my friend who is the biggest stoner I know, and she has the craziest tolerance ever. Like her tolerance is so high and even she couldn't smoke a few, uh, joints in one night. Now, not to say that my tolerance and her tolerance is the only tolerance, but that said, weed today is way more powerful than it used to be, which I'm sure a lot of people listening who smoked weed in the seventies and eighties will know this. But according to a bunch of different articles I read, on average, there was 4% of THC in marijuana back in the 1980s, and now it's around 20%, but can be up to around 40%. So if they smoked 20 joints, it would be maybe equivalent to like five or so joints today, but still, it's really hard to compare the two because smoking 20 whole joints is still a lot of smoke, and that takes a lot of time. Now that said, Checking the body for cannabis is not the same as checking it for alcohol. Like, they can tell how much alcohol was presently in someone's system at the time of death, but weed stays in your system for weeks up to months, depending on how often you smoke. Which is why when people know they're getting drug tested, they won't smoke weed for like weeks or even a month or so. Like, that's kind of something we all or many of us know. Unless you use that age-old concoction of niacin and cranberry juice, which I've done before. Yeah, that's that's totally a thing, right. So that's a, like one of those tricks that a lot of us are familiar with who know, oh, I'm gonna get drug tested at work and I don't want them to know that I smoke weed. Whereas with alcohol, like it's not the same situation at all because alcohol leaves your system way faster. So this, because of this, this doesn't mean 
that even if there was 20 joints worth of weed in their systems, this doesn't mean that they smoked 20 joints that day. It could have been across weeks of time, but even to this day, it's impossible to tell. It's, it's super nuanced. And older weed also was a lot harsher, so although it's technically possible that they could have smoked 20 joints that day, the chances of them being able to access this much weed each and smoking that much is just very unlikely. But at the time of this autopsy, this unfortunately was not discussed, and they just assumed that the test results meant that they had actively smoked that much weed when they died or right before they died. And we're going to get into a little um, little bit more of the inconsistencies involving this soon as well. But I just wanted to address that because I think that's shocking for anybody to hear, but it's just not that simple. Yeah. When I first heard that detail, I was like, damn. I mean, any normal person would probably fall asleep after smoking their fourth joint. And then to think about, I mean, you know, less. smoking 20 joints, you're like, yeah, probably even less. I mean, you would literally probably just pass out. Cause... Yeah, before you even get to that number. Yeah. Even with the the lower potent weed that was available, available yeah. in 1987. Right. So it still is like, what? <laughs> like, even back then, that's still like, what? This is a 16 and 17-year-old that yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, I remember hearing that detail and just thinking like there's absolutely no way. Yeah. But again, we're going to get into it a little bit more because it doesn't even seem that that is true anyway, that that much weed was in their systems anyway, but we'll get to that. So obviously with that belief that they had each smoked 20 joints right before they died or the day that they died, it goes without saying that their parents were just absolutely shocked by this. And even according to friends, Kevin and Don were not frequent drinkers or drug users or weed smokers. So even if they had smoked a bit that night, it wouldn't have been enough to incapacitate them to this degree that this Fami Malik is claiming. Now, Don's dad, Curtis, had been the last of the parents to see the boys because, like I said, or did you say that? No, you said that. They had, they had <laughs> just spoken to Don's dad. You're right, yeah. And they went to go get the rifle. Yes, yeah, so he was the last person to see them. And having just spoken to Don when he stopped by, he would have noticed if the boys were so high that night that they were at the risk of falling unconscious. And then there was the question of their positioning. Now, all four of the boys' parents, both moms and both dads, were very skeptical about this, just wondering how they would have laid themselves out like this if they were as high as this medical examiner said they were. Like, how and why would they have neatly arranged themselves on the train tracks as they were seen before the impact and then also put a tarp on themselves and where did this tarp come from? Don's dad, Curtis, also pointed out another unlikelihood, and that was the gun. Now, he claimed that Don would have never laid his gun on the gravel and rocks of the train tracks or even let it touch the ground because he kept meticulous care of it. It was always shined until the wood, like, gleamed. He really cared about this gun. So rejecting what they felt was a brush off by both local police and the medical examiner, the parents pooled their resources and hired a private investigator. While they were thankful for the extra help, local law enforcement and Dr. Malik were reportedly completely unhelpful in the investigator's search for more information. 
The private investigator was able to track down multiple accounts of suspicious activity that the police had apparently not followed up on from the evening that the boys were killed. And one paramedic who responded to the scene in the aftermath of the collision remarked that the blood appeared to be dark red in color, as if it had been dried blood or blood that had already been exposed to oxygen for some time. So this raised the question, how long had they been dead when they were met with the impact of the train? This paramedic, whose name was Shirley, said that she had also spotted some suspicious activity in the vicinity of the crash about an hour before it happened. Shirley observed a pickup truck with multiple men inside driving around the area before the crash, but couldn't be sure who was inside the truck or what they had been doing. And when asked why she hadn't shared this information in the original investigation, Shirley claimed that she had never been questioned. Now, another shocking account from someone in the area that night came out when a man claimed that he had seen two young men using a payphone nearby in the early morning hours of August 23rd, 1987. He apparently watched as they were wrenched from the payphone booth by police officers or people who were dressed like police officers. The young men were then apparently beaten and thrown into the back of an unmarked police car, which then sped off. This lead was also apparently not pursued by police. In one week before the boys' deaths, a man in a full military uniform was spotted near the train tracks in the area where the boys were killed. Now, he was reported to the police for suspicious activity, but when the officer showed up, the man opened fire on him and also on this police vehicle. Now, a week later, on the night that the boys were killed, this man was again spotted in his fatigues, walking in the vicinity where the boys were found, but police were never able to locate this man. Five months after the deaths of their sons, Linda and Larry Ives and Marvell and Curtis Henry held a press conference urging the police to reopen the case. Luckily, the mounting public pressure and growing questions worked, and the day after this press conference, the case was finally reopened, and the bodies were exhumed for a second medical examiner to give their opinion. This time, it was handled by Dr. Joe Burton, who was a medical examiner from Atlanta. Dr. Burton disputed the amount of marijuana found in their systems and said that between the two of them, they had actually only smoked about three joints, which would have been a totally normal amount considering how weak weed was back then. Right. If they had smoked three joints between them that night, they probably would have, you know, of course, been high from it. But this also doesn't mean that that's how much was in their system. Like, it means it was in their system when they died, but it doesn't mean that they smoked that much that day. That could have been across a week, two weeks, sorry, I sent my water bottle, a week, two weeks or more, depending. Right. But... It could have been from that day, but we still don't know. So even then, that doesn't tell us if they were high or not when they died. Right, yeah. And and Dr. Burton was claiming that the amount of marijuana in their systems was nowhere near the levels that they would have if they had smoked like 20 joints each. Right, which is what Dr. Malik's claiming. Yeah, and there was also no trace of alcohol found in their systems either, which I think you touched on earlier. And Dr. Burton also felt strongly that the boys had at least been unconscious when they had been discarded on these tracks. But he also entertained the possibility that one, if not both of them, 
had already been dead by the time the train made contact with their bodies. So with that, the cause of the boys' deaths were officially changed from accidental to probable homicide. Well, another shocking development came when Dr. Burton announced what he had found after analyzing Kevin's t-shirt. According to Dr. Burton, the shirt contained, quote, lots of tears and defects in the, quote, left lower back area in the area of the injury. Now, this section of Kevin's t-shirt was analyzed under a microscope for precision. And Dr. Burton explained, quote, with this microscope, you can tell whether it's been torn or cut with something like scissors or a knife. There is no question that this particular defect was not a tear, that it was made by something cutting through the fabric. Also, around the margins of this defect, there are a number of red blood cells, so there appears to also be blood around this defect. I think this is important, first of all, because the shirt was not on the body when it was found. And secondly, the defect is not a tear that you might expect from snagging on a cross tie or snagging on a railroad spike, but is consistent with something actually cutting the fabric. It's also important because the defect is in the area of the injury. He then continued on to describe that Kevin had sustained what he called a, quote, pattern facial wound, and that his skull had been injured enough to support the possibility of being struck with the butt of Don's gun. Don had sustained back injuries and was found without a shirt on, but his shirt was recovered later at the scene. And after this discovery, the cause of death was changed from probable homicide to a definite homicide. Dr. Burton concluded that his findings, quote, strongly suggest that the boys were injured, rendered unconscious, or even killed prior to their bodies being run over by the train. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/goingwest. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns, am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder 
in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west. Do you want to earn cash back while you shop? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out Rakuten, especially because this week, May 6th through May 13th, Rakuten is having their biggest cashback event of the year with 15% cashback at hundreds of stores. Rakuten is the shopping platform to use so that you can save big while you shop. They're partnered with over 3,500 stores across all categories, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and so many others. Some of our personal favorite participating stores are Ray-Ban, Hydro Flask, Clinique Online, and Verbo, just to name a few. There are so many big stores and brands that you're already buying from. But don't miss this major deal. It's a limited time only with eight days of these high cashback rates, so you can save more than usual. Membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you can get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? 
It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. On September 10th, 1988, a grand jury ruled that homicide was definite in the deaths of Kevin Ives and Don Henry. And this came after over a year of their parents fighting for more answers and a full investigation, as well as a gag order that was initially placed on Dr. Burton. Though it's unclear why, a local Circuit County judge issued a gag order against Dr. Burton, which initially barred him from talking to both state police and the FBI about his findings. Which is so bizarre. Yeah, and seems very suspicious as well. Thankfully, this was lifted, but the families had had enough of the red tape and began speaking out against law enforcement and Dr. Malik, who was the person who performed that original autopsy. That quack. That quack Dr. Malik. So Dr. Malik was the chief of state medical examiner from 1979 to 1992 before being removed from office five years after these murders. And he was not only accused of taking bribes, but also kickbacks. Super sus. But even before he was removed from office, the parents of the boys had reason to distrust him, obviously. When met with criticism about his handling of the case, Dr. Malik released the following statement through his lawyer, saying, quote, Dr. Malik has said he doesn't believe anybody laid a finger on those boys. Despite Dr. Burton's contradictory findings, Dr. Malik remained in office and maintained his position that there was no foul play involved. So Linda Ives, who's Kevin's mom, set out to get Dr. Malik fired from his position. And she even joined forces with family members of other victims whose loved ones were, you know, met with more questions than answers. And the group actually nicknamed themselves Vomit, or Victims of Malik's Infuriating Testimony. I love that. Yeah, so crazy. So, in his final years as a state-appointed medical examiner, public opinion soured on Dr. Malik. A cartoon criticizing him was even printed in the Arkansas Democrat, which depicted him standing in front of a body whose feet were encased in cement. The text read, quote, Clearly a case of this guy carrying more cement than he could swim with. I'll have to rule accidental death. So it's kind of funny that they're basically poking fun at him for being so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's an idiot. Yeah. And a quack. But sadly, as the years just kind of slid away with no answers, even his removal wouldn't help the boys' family find the answers that they were so desperate for. But Dr. Malik wasn't the only villain emerging in their story. Saline County Prosecutor Dan Harmon is another person now implicated in the deaths of Kevin and Don. So Dan Harmon was tasked with assisting the parents while a grand jury deliberated about whether the deaths should be ruled, you know, homicides or kept as accidental. However, in the years following his involvement, he was disbarred and charged with conspiracy to extort property, racketeering, and conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute drugs. And his wife was also caught stealing cocaine out of an evidence locker. 
That's such a weird detail in this case. Classy stuff. So one investigator covering Dan's fall from Grace wrote, quote, It is the role of Dan Harmon in this story that is most convincing that there was and is a multi-level bipartisan conspiracy. In January of 1994, the FBI opened their own investigation into the boys' deaths, and a local came to Linda claiming that they had witnessed Dan Harmon himself at the scene of the boys' deaths that evening, his pants apparently splattered with their blood. And this particular witness was considered so credible that they were put into protective custody and even passed a polygraph test. They also apparently corroborated information that only the authorities had access to. However, by November of 1995, the FBI had shut down the investigation and Linda was apparently told to consider the possibility that there was, quote, no crime committed against their son. Now, throughout the years, the most pervasive theory has been that the boys bore witness to illegal drug smuggling activity and were simply unfortunate pawns in the cover-up. In the 1980s, the South was a magnet for drug smuggling activity between the states and South America. And we touched on this in episode 253 about Norman Ladner, uh, who's believed to have been caught in the crossfire during a drug drop in Mississippi in 1989, almost exactly two years after the murders of Kevin and Dawn but his case also remains unsolved. Arkansas in particular was a hotbed of drug activity, and one story became notorious in the drug discourse of the 1980s. Barry Seal was an American pilot, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who basically fell in favor with the infamous Pablo Escobar and the uh, Medellin cartel out of Colombia. So after being fired by TWA, or Trans World Airlines, in 1972 for smuggling plastic explosives into Mexico, Barry moved on to marijuana, and then later, cocaine. And while serving time in jail in Honduras, Barry made connections to smugglers from the Medellin cartel, who brought him on to work for them starting in 1981. Barry claimed that he could earn as much as $500,000 per flight getting cocaine from Colombia to the U.S., so he started by airdropping large shipments of cocaine to remote parts of Louisiana, such as where, you know, Norman Ladner was killed. But when the FBI caught wind of this, he actually moved his operations to the Mena Intermountain Regional Airport in Mena, Arkansas, which is just over two hours west of Alexander, where Kevin and Don were killed. Now, by 1985, Barry Seal was caught and he was also arrested and forced to cease operations. However, the drug smuggling continued without him. In exchange for a lighter sentence and probation, Barry agreed to work as an informant to take down the operation that he once thrived under. So absolutely furious at this, the Medellin cartel ordered his assassination, and Barry was shot and killed in his hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana on February 19, 1986. And if anybody is interested, the 2017 movie American Made starring Tom Cruise depicts his life of crime and eventual murder. Now, while Barry was killed over a year before the murders of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, the drug operation legacy that he left behind in that region of Arkansas is believed to have been alive and well. So this has come to be, you know, one of the most widely accepted theories about the boys' deaths. And even their parents have claimed that they also believe this to be the reason that the boys were killed. 
eerily multiple people who claim to be aiding the investigation or to have information pertinent to the deaths of the boys were murdered in the following years. A friend of Kevin and Don's who had actually spent part of their last night with them died less than a year after the boys were killed. 19-year-old Keith Coney reportedly told his family that he knew that two police officers had killed Kevin and Don. Keith's mom even claimed that he had been in the vicinity when the boys had been struck by the train and that he had seen two men with them. In May of 1988, he lost control of his motorcycle and crashed. And according to the responding officers, in addition to his injuries from the crash, he reportedly had his throat slashed. But the details of the police report were inconclusive and an autopsy was not even performed. Then there's another Keith, but this is 44-year-old Keith McCaskill, and he owned a nightclub in the area and was apparently tasked with, quote, keeping his ears open for any information about the mysterious deaths of the boys. In the days before his death, his friends and family recall him being paranoid about, quote, the railroad track thing and that he had, quote, talked to the wrong people. He allegedly even helped make his own funeral arrangements. And then on November 10th, 1988, Keith was stabbed 113 times by a local teenager named Ronald Shane Smith. Some believe that Ronald was bribed and paid off to commit the murder as an inmate came forward after Keith's death saying that they were offered $4,000 to murder him. But police downplayed the potential link between the three murders, announcing, quote, At this point, we don't think there's any connection between the deaths. That's the assumption we are going on at this time. They also added that Keith McCaskill had not been able to offer them much information about the murders of Kevin and Don. The deputy prosecutor for the county stated, quote, I have visited with him, but the information he gave me was not earth shattering. And he also said that Keith, quote, was not a big informant or anything of that nature. But it is pretty weird that he was telling people before he died, before he was murdered, that he was paranoid about that train track thing. Yeah, and also the fact that they used the words was not a big informant. So so yeah. you're saying he was an informant, right. he just wasn't a big one. Right, as you know? if that means that they still couldn't have killed him for being an informant of any kind. Sure. You know, but the coincidences continued. So in January of 1989, local man Greg Collins was killed by a gunshot to the face shortly before he was to appear in front of Dan Harmon with information regarding the murders. But apparently his death was thought to be a suicide. Then on April 19th, 1989, local 21-year-old Jeffrey Rhodes was found dead after having been missing for over two weeks. According to his family, he mentioned that he, quote, knew too much about the murders of Kevin, Don, and Keith McCaskill, and that he had also been an informant about the drug drops happening at the Mina Airport. His body was recovered from a landfill, shot twice in the head, and then set ablaze. Yeah, this is all just way too suspicious. Yeah, it really is. It's very convenient that there's all these murders happening in the same area and, and all these people are saying, I, you know, I knew something about this. Right, and not to be disrespectful if um, Greg Collins' death was a suicide, but was it? It's just all a bit fishy. 
It definitely is. So a local man and woman were implicated in the murder of Jeffrey and claimed that they were paid in cocaine to murder Jeffrey. And though this couldn't be unequivocally proven, it has been speculated that some of these men had their autopsies performed by none other than Dr. Malik. Of course. And as unsolved murder cases often do, this case took on a mind of its own. Now, some feel that the rash of deaths of people who claim they had intimate knowledge of the boys' murders is just purely coincidental, and that people in the small community of Alexander just kind of wanted to feel included in the most gripping unsolved murder of the region. Some feel that it goes deeper, however, even connecting it to the Arkansas governor at the time, who happened to be future president Bill Clinton. And there are like whole communities online built around proving that Bill Clinton was like orchestrating the drug drops for their own financial gain and then silencing those who came up against it, such as Kevin Ives and Don Henry. And you can find their names in a bunch of online forums about different popular conspiracy theories about the Clintons. But either way, the reality is that 36 years later, we still don't have answers for their families. Through her tireless efforts to bring answers for the families, Kevin's mom, Linda Ives, became the central figure in the investigation. When investigative journalist Mara Leverett penned a book about the case entitled Boys on the Tracks, Death, Denial, and a Mother's Crusade to Bring Her Son's Killers to Justice, Mara specifically thanked Linda, saying, quote, who gave me her time, her records, and her trust, and who keeps this story alive. In a YouTube video she posted in 2019, Linda said candidly, quote, I would just like to thank everyone out there who has been supportive. I hope and pray you will help spread the word out there and get the information out there. There has been so much going on recently. I almost feel like Kevin and Don have been left behind because it has been so many years. Sadly, Linda passed away in 2021, never able to find answers for her son and his best friend. One of the private investigators who assisted her in the case said of Linda after her passing, quote, As far as I'm concerned, Linda Ives is an angel, figuratively and literally now. Linda's neighbor remembers, quote, Their memories, all they have to embrace, are good, and that is why their quest for justice is untiring. One of life's most precious possessions, their son, was taken from them. Because of their efforts and determination, we all will one day know who and why. If you have any information about the murders of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, please call the Saline County Sheriff's Office at 501-303-5648. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. This story is just so crazy. It's all over the place. The fact that there were two very different autopsies makes everything that much more confusing. And all the crazy conspiracies attached to it, like, it is a mind-blowing story. It absolutely is. And if you guys want to see photos from this case and all the other cases that we've covered thus far, head on over to our socials. We're on Instagram at Going West Podcast. 
Twitter or X at Going West Pod, and we're also on Facebook. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger.